BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. On this episode of Newt's World, my guest today is someone who the Washington Post has called, quote, a driving force in American politics. I think of him as a personal friend, somebody who is an entrepreneurial genius. As the president of RMG Research, Scott Rasmussen has been polling Americans for their opinions for more than 35 years. He provides political and business leaders with insights from his trademarked counter-polling platform through a Gold Circle membership program. Members got a better understanding of the public mood through access to Scott's data and analysis along with customized briefings. I recently received a briefing from Scott on his research defining the, quote, elite 1%. He did the research with the support of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. The results are so intriguing that I asked him to share his findings with all of us. I am really pleased to welcome my guest to my friend, somebody I admire so deeply, Scott Rasmussen. Scott, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Well, it's great to be here. You know, I love talking about this study and about just the world that we live in. There's so much in politics where people just kind of go with the flow. They say the same things they've been saying for decades. And we live in an ever-changing world, so you have to keep looking at it differently. When you go back to your early years, which we'll do later on, there was no reason to believe you'd become a sort of national polling guru. What drew you into this fascination with public opinion? In 1984, I sold the business and there was that Reagan-Mondale campaign. I was a little bit disturbed with the lack of serious discussion on federal budget issues. Wrote a book on the federal budget. Connie Mack, who you knew well, wrote the foreword to it. And that got me into the political world. And I started noting that the questions that were being asked by pollsters didn't sound like anybody I ever talked to outside of D.C., So I did my very first poll back in the late 80s. It was on Social Security. So few people talked about it back then that the Wall Street Journal asked me to write something about it. 
And it just took off from there. And I think it was a different way of looking at the world. I was always pretty good with numbers. What I think you may even forget is how much the world has changed of polling. Tip O'Neill, who was one of your predecessors as speaker, was speaker for a very long time. And if you look at the national databases, I'll bet there aren't a dozen national polls on his job approval ratings or favorability ratings. Now we have polls on the speaker coming out just about every day. But it was a different world back then. So you entered that world and then you decided to launch your first website in the year I remember very fondly, 1994, when we were doing the contract with America. What led you to decide to create a website? Well, because I was too stupid to really know what the Internet was all about. It was the new thing. Everybody was talking about it, and I had a media background, so it did strike me that it was a media platform. And I thought it was a place that I could put some of my data, and that would attract me some clients. And what I didn't understand was really how revolutionary the Internet was going to be. I was startled by the attention that we got. I was startled by the response to the online world. And ultimately, Rush Limbaugh would start talking about our work, or Fox News came on the air and began talking about it. We were the very first people who ever put polling data directly to the consumers online, and that became a great success. It certainly made you a household name, at least among the politically aware. You now produce both counter-polling and the gold membership program. Talk just briefly about that. Well, counterpolling is something I've actually been doing forever. I finally came up with a name for it. You know, it's what I said earlier, the way I put it today. Most pollsters ask questions in the language of a Georgetown cocktail party. And again, most voters don't talk that way. So I consciously look at the mainstream polls that come out and I try to think, how would I translate that so a normal person would understand it? When NPR asks about gender affirming care, I've done research to show nobody knows what that means. So if I ask about puberty blockers and gender transition surgery, you get wildly different results. Very few Americans really have an understanding of what woke means. So if you ask a question about what it means, what is you know woke or is it good or bad, the results aren't very meaningful unless you translate a little bit. So that's the counterpolling and the gold circle membership, which I'm very pleased that your organization is one of our members. It's a membership program that we give access to our data and our insights. And we hold fun webinars like we did recently on the Elite 1%. Can people who are interested join the gold membership program? They sure can. But it's a high dollar entry fee. It's not a $29.95 subscription. And I have to say, the quality of the information you provide is extraordinary. And frankly, when I go on Fox News fairly often, between the program we run on America's New Majority Project and the program you run, I feel like I'm reasonably confident talking about the values of the American people. I'm a big advocate of Lincoln's admonition that with public sentiment, anything is possible, and without public sentiment, nothing is possible. And I'm appalled at Washington's isolation from public sentiment. I mean, it's a major reason why we have the current political eruption that we have is that this city has become a fortress of lobbyist interest groups and bureaucracies against the rest of the country. It's kind of amazing. I just want to jump in there on something. You know, I was really fortunate as a high school student. My best friend's father went to school with a guy named Joe Napolitan, who was legendary. He polled on John F. Kennedy's campaign and Lyndon Johnson was the first person known as a political consultant. 
He gave me an hour of his time as a high school student to talk about the way he saw the world. And one of the things that he said was that you should never underestimate the intelligence of the American people, but you should never overestimate their level of political knowledge. And I believe official Washington these days does the opposite. They underestimate their intelligence and they overestimate how much they pay attention to politics. Napolitan wrote a book called The Election Game and How to Win It, which I used as a Bible for years. I mean, the 94 campaign was in part designed based on Joseph Napolitan's insights. It's very, very strong. I had no idea you had that relationship. Yeah, I still am amazed at the the role that he had in the world that he gave me that time as a kid who really didn't appreciate how special it was. I'm intrigued because you do so many polls and you have such a depth of experience that the story we were talking about earlier before we began this tape was that you noticed an anomaly of only three or four people out of a thousand person sample, and then you began looking for it. Talk through how you came to the elite 1%. Well, the first thing, you know, I look at polls all the time. We do a minimum of two national surveys a week. I look at our data and other data. And one of the things that first caught my eye was there was a huge gap between the views of postgraduate Americans and everybody else. Uh, There's a lot of talk in the political world about the diploma divide, those with and without a college degree. But in fact, the gap between those with a postgraduate degree and a bachelor's degree is often bigger than the gap between those with a bachelor's degree and no degree. So I began looking at that. I also noticed that people who lived in very heavily, densely populated urban areas, more than 10,000 people per square mile, were also way out of touch with the American people. And not surprisingly, upper income people were as well. I had a theory that if you combined all three of these, you might find something unique. And the logic of it was, If you get a postgraduate degree and go to live in Manhattan or Washington, you might have different attitudes than if you have a postgraduate degree and go to live in Cedar Rapids or McKinney, Texas or something. There's only about eight or 10 people in our normal samples that have all three of those attributes. So I combined about 25 surveys, got a sample of a few hundred people in the elite world, and I was stunned. Among the entire population in all those surveys, Joe Biden's job approval rating was 41%. Among the elite group, it was 82%. So even with a small sample, I knew this was something worth pursuing. It's very expensive to poll these people. I did a couple of pilot studies just to see if I was on to something. And then fortunately, the Committee to Unleash Prosperity was interested in We did two surveys of this elite 1%, and the results, I don't know whether to describe them as fascinating or terrifying or a little of both. It is terrifying. You begin to realize how deep the cultural divide is. And these are the people who run the universities, run the news media, run much of the government, serve as judges and prosecutors. I mean, it is the power center of the United States, and they are totally different from the rest of us. That's right. First thing we did, every question that we asked, we surveyed this elite 1% group. We did a companion survey of a thousand voters just to see where the gaps were. The first question that caught my attention was among the elite 1%, 47% believe there is too much individual freedom in America. Among most voters, 57% say there's not enough freedom. So we were having wildly different views 
And we also then noticed there were a couple of key subgroups. One that's not a surprise given the current news cycle, there were people who went to about a dozen elite universities. They make up about half of this elite world, and their views were even further out of touch with the American people. And the other subgroup were those people who talk politics every day. So if you can picture the elite 1%, some of them are out doing business or doing other things. Some of them are obsessed with politics. And among that politically obsessed group, 69% say there is too much individual freedom in America. It's hard to imagine that, but that is the view of the people. When the elite 1% tell you that there's too much freedom in America, What do you think they mean by that? First of all, I know what they answered. The question they answered was we asked very straightforward. Is there too much individual freedom, too much government control, or is the balance about right? We know that voters and the elite 1% gave wildly different answers, and it's kind of a mind-boggling stat. What I think they mean is a little bit of we need to restore order in the country. We need rules for everybody to play by. We, the elites, know what the rules are, and we're frustrated that the American people aren't following. They were frustrated that a lot of people didn't want to follow advice during the pandemic. They're frustrated when parents go to complain to their school boards. I think that's where the elites see that as a real threat. These are the people who would force you to buy an electric car and would force you to give up your gas stove and would feel that you were being selfish if you didn't do what you were told. Well, and actually, they're probably disappointed that you don't thank them for it because they're busy saving the world on your behalf. You know, sometimes I say that their view is they don't want government of, by, and for the people. They want government of and by the elites, and they think it's good for the people. I mean, that's sort of the mindset here. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. 
CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. So you describe a dirty dozen elite universities. Can you describe that just a minute? Because I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, so the dirty dozen universities, I didn't come up with the list. Actually, there was some academic research done back in the Obama years, and it's been updated ever since. And if you look at the politically influential elites, or if you look at the corporate board elites, or if you were to go to the philanthropic world and the charitable worlds, about half of the people that are dominating those those institutions went to one of 12 schools, either graduate or undergraduate. Most of them are the Ivy League, but you've also got Stanford and Chicago and a few others in there. And, you know, these are schools that do produce most of the leadership. In fact, just to give you a sense of scale, before Amy Coney Barrett was lifted up to the Supreme Court, the last justice who did not go to one of these 12 elite schools was Thurgood Marshall in 1967. And that's a vast change. In the 40s and 50s, there was a lot more diversity about where people came from. Your dirty dozen are Harvard, Yale, University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern, Johns Hopkins, Columbia, Stanford, Berkeley, Princeton, Cornell, MIT, and the University of Chicago. And some of those have been in the news lately. In a sense, you know, maybe the advice to the next administration is, if they come from one of these, don't appoint them. That would be a good start. Yeah. That's amazing. I want to be very clear on this. I'm not anti-education or even anti-elite or anti-expert. We need expertise, but it's got to be accountable. If I have a cold and I go to the doctor, the doctor has expertise that I don't have, but I make the final decisions. And when we have a government, we do need experts to handle a lot of tasks. But there still needs to be accountability to the voters. I noticed you surveyed Harvard's freshman class, and I was actually startled by your numbers. First off, I didn't do that survey. Harvard did that. The Harvard Crimson released it. But the numbers are absolutely stunning again. Only 6% of the entering class at Harvard are Protestant. Basically, half are either agnostic or atheist. So if you want to talk about values and faith, it doesn't look anything like America. It's like eight to one agnostic or atheist over Protestant. Right. And it's also about eight to one progressive over conservative. And at a time when most Americans are saying we don't want affirmative action to determine college admissions, these freshmen overwhelmingly support it. You know, what troubles me about this is if our leadership funnel is being narrowed down to these schools and their student body and their teachings are so out of touch with America, that's problematic for our system of government. You know, during the Tea Party era, I spoke at Harvard and had a brown bag lunch afterwards with some of the faculty members. And one of them, 
she was very sincere and very frustrated, said, why won't the American people let us lead? That's what we were trained to do. And my first comment was, they don't like where you're leading. But the second point, and really the big issue here is what an arrogant, entitled attitude that reflects, that the rest of us are too stupid to play a part in the leadership of our nation. And I think that's part of the problem. The Crimson Survey pointed out that 1.46% of the faculty think they're conservatives. 1.46%. This is virtually insane. But there's a number in here which I was very struck by that you said was the most frightening number you had seen in polling. Now, ironically, it is the opposite of the message we're told over and over by the establishment. Talk to us for a minute about the willingness to steal elections. So this is one of those questions you put out, you're never quite sure what to expect. We asked a thousand voters, what if your favorite candidate lost a close election, but their campaign team knew they could cheat and get away with it? Would you rather have them cheat and win or basically play fair and lose the election? Only 7% of voters said they wanted to cheat and win, which, you know, I wish it was 1%, but still 7% means that the overwhelming majority of Americans are still on board with fair elections. When we asked the elite 1%, that same question, 35% of them said they would rather cheat and win. But what was really terrifying in that most terrifying result I've ever seen, the elite 1% who were talking politics every day, that politically obsessed elite, 69% of them would rather cheat than follow what the voters decided. That's a win-at-all-cost mentality. That's a we-know-best-and-we-don't-want-voters-to-get-in-our-way mentality. And it speaks of the fact that they trust the government and they don't trust the voters. I was very struck with how willing the elites are to impose on us. You point out that 77% of the elite 1% would impose strict restrictions and rationing on the private use of gas, meat, and electricity. If there was a straight-up election with that as the referendum issue, these people would be crushed by popular will. Right. Absolutely. And you know, there are a lot of individual things they would like to ban, SUVs and gas-powered vehicles. Some of that can be attributed to the fact that if you're in those urban areas, you don't drive very much. But I think a lot of it can be attributed to the fact that the elites know the rules won't apply to them. That is a factor in all of this. And I think it's very easy to talk about these issues without really thinking about how big that cultural divide is. But when you've got a bunch of people who are in power who believe they should overturn elections, they should do what they think is right, and that the American people have too much individual freedom, what happens when they leave their bubble and go home for the holidays and talk to regular voters who don't share that view? I suspect they don't. That would be too painful. I mean, I noticed, for example, one of the places is rapidly moving towards a real crescendo, 72% of the elite 1% would ban gas-powered vehicles. And I just saw a poll that said 6% of the country wants to buy electric vehicles. Now, the idea that the government's going to impose on 94% of the country has to be as anti-democracy and anti-popular government as anything I've ever seen. Yes. And I think the good news in this is that voters are pushing back, that there is a reluctance to embrace all of this. 
it's a chilling mindset that we have. One of the things we want to do at RMG Research with our continued focus on this is to shine a light on just how far out of touch these people are, because it is just beyond comprehension. It is something, by the way, you love history probably even more than I do, but Woodrow Wilson dreamed of this scenario back in the 19th century. This was the founding of the progressive movement, was to have a specially educated group of civil servants who would be insulated from voters and do what's best for the country. So that's what we're heading towards. And voters, fortunately, aren't coming up with it. It always somehow involves the elite themselves not being affected. I noticed that 55% of the elite 1% favor banning non-essential air travel, which they would define. Of course. On the other hand, John Kerry has to fly by private plane. Absolutely. And look, we see this all the time in all kinds of survey results that people like to impose rules on others. It's just when you have to apply it to yourself, it gets a little challenging. Having been a congressman from Georgia, 53% of the elite 1% would ban private air conditioning. (laughs) I mean, you have to wonder what climate they live in. It would be like banning heat in the Northeast. Exactly. And we all get caught in our bubbles. And we all have a circle of people. We begin to listen and things begin to make sense. And all I can really believe is that, you know, in this world, there are so many people talking about climate change is going to end humanity within 12 years unless we do something, that nothing seems extreme compared to that. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. 
Visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. One of the things I'm struck with that you really bring to life is that the rise of the administrative state, the power of the bureaucracy, has also been matched by the rise of distrust of that very state by the average person. So it's a real tension between we the people and we the bureaucrats. You know, one of the things I mentioned in the presentation on this, there are three times as many government regulators today as there were in 1972. So the administrative state has grown tremendously. And with things like the Chevron decision, they were given ever more authority. Interestingly, from that same time, from 1972 until now, a majority of Americans have never trusted the federal government to do the right thing most of the time. So you've got this growth in the administrative state combined with a declining trust in the government, and that creates not just a tension between bureaucrats and voters, but it creates real questions about the legitimacy of the government. You point out that 89% of the voters still believe in America's founding ideas. That's a much bigger number than I would have guessed after all these years of brainwashing by the left. Yeah, we have done a lot of research on this. And even on things like, so if you talk to people who say they like socialism, who a lot of Americans would instinctively say, wow, they don't like America's founding ideals. Turns out their definition of socialism isn't what some of us older folks remember it to be. Most people who say they like socialism define it ultimately as decision-making closer to home. They don't think of it as an economic system. So the words change along the way, but people have a very strong distrust of centralized power. And the ideals of freedom, equality, and self-governance are really important. We did a survey years back on hate speech. We read a dozen really horrific statements you know, about all Mexicans coming into our country are rapists type of things. I mean, really bad stuff. And not a single one of those statements did most people think should be banned. They thought they were atrocious. They thought they would run away from anybody talking like that, but they didn't think they should be banned. And the reason was they didn't trust the government to make those decisions. What additional polling do you plan to do on the elite 1%? Oh, we have great plans. We're looking for support for it right now. But one of the things we're going to do is a survey on what they believe that voters think. We have some indications already that they actually think voters don't disagree with them as much as they think. The survey we did so far was mostly regulatory and finance and economic things. We want to get into some cultural issues, whether it's guns or trans policies or anything else. We want to begin to understand really who they are and where they're coming from, a better definition. So we'll do a lot of research on that. And then we also want to do some research on the people who are managing the federal government today. What are their views? And so that's going to be an ongoing project as we begin to roll this out. I'll tell you one thing that struck me very recently. We took a look at our data in the month leading up to October 7th. And then we compared it to the same results in December, so a couple of months later after the horrific attack on Israel. Among most Americans, their opinion of Joe Biden never changed. 
But among those with a postgraduate degree, it fell by 18 points. I think that's because they were more supportive of Hamas than the rest of the country. It just speaks to how out of touch they are. And that's why I want to keep researching this group to learn more about them. If you do a similar pattern of senior bureaucrats, you will really do the country a great service because I have a hunch that they are in their own unique way as arrogant and as willing to impose and as indifferent to the American people as the elite 1%. I would probably guess, and I don't have any data on this, so it's just a guess right now, that they seek the consent of the 1% rather than the consent of the governed. I think that's right. That's why I think this is a brilliant study. Now, I have to take just a minute because your background is so astonishing and very few people know about it. I mean, you grew up in a very entrepreneurial environment. Can you talk about the early days of entrepreneurship? It's funny when you put it like that, because I can't remember any other days. (laughs) You know, my father was into broadcasting. I did my first commercial, my first radio commercial when I was seven years old. We got involved with the New England Whalers and the World Hockey Association. I did some announcing there. We always had side projects going on. That was just the world we lived in. You couldn't get the Whalers on TV. We kept looking for ways to make that happen. And along the way, my father and I learned about this crazy new thing called the satellite and satellite transmission. And people don't understand how different that was. In 1978, you know, there's only one college football game on a week. College basketball had a couple of national games a year. That was it. Most sports teams weren't on. That was the environment we were in. And to send a signal around the country, you had to go to AT&T and they would just charge you by the mile. The satellite came along. RCA put SATCOM-1 into orbit. We could send a signal around the U.S. for less than it cost to send the same signal around the state of Connecticut via traditional landlines. And when we learned that, we thought, wow, there's something big here. And we ended up creating a little network called ESPN. And it's done pretty well since then. That's wild. So it really started, though, around a particular hockey team. And how do you build an audience for that hockey team? Right. And we were doing everything you could imagine to try and get them on TV. We actually had a proposal. We met with all the cable operators in Connecticut and said, we're going to get the Whalers, UConn basketball and Bristol Red Sox baseball. And we're going to produce it for you guys. And they laughed us out of the room. But they did tell us about the satellite. And You know, when we found out about the satellite, Al Pernello was the guy who was selling that for RCA. I still keep in touch with him. He was telling us how different the world was going to be. And we knew there was something there. We couldn't put our finger on it. And the day that we actually came up with the idea was August 16th, 1978. My little sister's 16th birthday. She was with my grandparents at the Jersey Shore. We're going to drive down and visit her. And my father and I got stuck in a traffic jam in Waterbury, Connecticut. We were arguing about what to do with this satellite. And at one point, I just said, I don't care what you do with it. Show football all weekend. See if I care. And for the first time all day, he didn't yell back at me. He's like, well, show sports all weekend long. That's great. And then about an hour later, we figured out not just on the weekend, but all sports all day, every day. And You know, when I tell that in the 21st century, you lose a little of the flavor. But you remember in the 70s, there were only three networks. Not everybody had remote control. The most important factor in determining your ratings was the lead-in show. 
If you came in after a top-rated show, you had an audience. And we said, we will beat the lead in. A sports fan will turn on our network before turning on one of the other three. And that's just what happened. Well, and I think I saw the other day, I think 96 of the top 100 shows on TV last year were NFL games. Sports have become sort of the American focus. They've become the American focus, but also the rest of the media landscape has become so fragmented. The term we used in 1979 was narrowcasting. The idea was you had these three networks were broadcasting and we were going to be for a narrow target audience. We've lost that distinction. I had a parallel story. I talked to Ted Turner one time. He owned Channel 17, which was showing old reruns. And he read this article in the Trade Journal that Time Warner was looking at a nationwide system. And he thought, you know, they're really smart. (laughs) So he actually put Channel 17 on satellite faster than Time Warner could study putting HBO up. And and then he bought the Braves because he needed filler for Channel 17. So the very first cable convention I ever went to when we were exploring this was in New Hampshire. And Superstation TBS was going to come up and make a presentation. And Turner had this pitch where he said, you can get NHL hockey. And he showed a Bruins game. And you can get, you know, Major League Baseball. And he showed the Red Sox or something. Really, it was all Atlanta teams was all you could get on his network. But he was selling it pretty aggressively then. I talked years ago to Jay Rockefeller, who, when he was governor of West Virginia, became a fan of the Braves because it was the only team that was being sent in by satellite for him to watch. Well, in the 70s, UCLA was the best college basketball team, best college basketball program ever. There are people who argue that because of the satellite revolution and ESPN, that shifted the balance of power back to the East Coast. And the reason being, the kids on the East Coast couldn't stay up late enough to watch the other games when everybody could watch the East Coast games. I look back on that story and how much, and first of all, you know, it's just, it's forever ago. You can't really appreciate how much the world has changed. But little shifts begin to have a big change. In 1979, when we went on the air, if the president of the United States gave a speech, all other broadcasting stopped because the networks all showed his speech. By 1988, the CBS affiliate in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I lived at the time, was preempting the president's speech to show an ACC basketball game. Once people began to have an option, the interest it changed. And think about the political implications. When Jimmy Carter or Richard Nixon spoke to the nation, almost half or more than half of the TV sets in that nation were watching them. You don't have anything like that today. Given your own personal lifetime, does it make you an optimist about the future? Absolutely. I have no doubt that America's best days are still to come. We probably will get worse before it gets better. But the reason I'm optimistic, one, we've been through this before. 1968 was a terrible year. You know, there were talks about the end of America. The Cold War, people were thought we could never win it. But the real reason I'm optimistic is something you mentioned earlier. 89% of Americans still believe our founding ideals are worth fighting for. Free speech, freedom, equality, and self-governance. As long as we remain committed to those things and we have to fight the elite 1% to make sure that we carry the day, 
but that will ensure a bright future for our kids, for our children and grandchildren. Scott, I want to thank you for joining me. You're truly one of the exceptional leaders on conveying public opinion, but also on conveying a buoyant, optimistic sense of an American future, something which Ronald Reagan would have treasured. And I want to let our listeners know they can visit your website at rmgresearch.com to learn more about what your public opinion research firm does to help leaders understand more about key issues. And I think this has been a great conversation, and I'm very grateful that you take the time. Well, I've enjoyed it. And by the way, anytime you put my name in the same sentence as Ronald Reagan, I consider that a good day. Thank you to my guest, Scott Rasmussen. You can get a link to view his report on the Elite 1% on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you.